Welcome to ARE Live. I'm Mark Tier, the founder of Black Spectacles. Uh, today I'm sitting across from Mike Newman, who's going to field your awesome questions, uh, the, uh, of which you guys sent a ton at, uh, at lightning speed, because uh, we only have an hour here. So um, uh, this is going to be a really great Q&A session with Mike. Um, and what's cool is that there's a lot of different questions um, covering a wide range of exams and NCARB topics. So this is going to be a really good session. Uh, but before we get started, uh, if you'd like to attend our next ARE live broadcast where we'll review our uh, PPP mock exam, Programming, Planning, and Practice mock exam, on May 25th, uh, visit blackspectacles.com slash podcast to register. And during the broadcast, uh, just like today, you'll have a chance to ask questions to the group and Mike. Um, Excuse me. Now, if you don't know Mike, he's an adjunct professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. He's also the founder of Shed Studio and is the instructor for Black Spectacles online AIA ARE prep curriculum. Um, if you haven't already checked out our AIA ARE prep curriculum, head over to blackspectacles.com to check out any of the free uh, tutorials for the courses. Um, and at the end today, we have a special Black Spectacles promo code to share, so make sure you stay tuned for that at the end. Um, and then also, um, uh, tonight we'll be taking questions um, and any of your, uh, your comments uh, using uh, both the GoToWebinar question box uh, as well as on Twitter using the ARE Live podcast hashtag. So hashtag ARE Live podcast if you're on Twitter. Um, but first, uh, let's go ahead and hand it over to Mr. Newman. Okay. Uh, hey, everybody. Um, so as Mark said, we got lots and lots of very good uh, uh, questions, uh, most of which I think will present us with a uh, lots to talk about. Um, there are bound to be a few of these questions that uh, the answers that we give are going to be very unsatisfactory because uh, there's just sort of the nature of some of these things are just complicated. Um, but we'll talk about it to the best uh, extent that we can. Uh, and sort of run through it. As Mark said, some of these are more about kind of NCARB and about the process, and a few of them are uh, much more specific, uh, actual sort of detailed questions. Uh, and so we'll just kind of run through and get through as, uh, as many as we sort of think we can, uh, can raise through. Um, so I'm just going to dive right in. Uh, Jennifer asked, uh, in some of the videos that we've uh, put out on the Black Spectacle site, um, that there was sort of a question about uh, uh, kind of how cooling works. Uh, and her uh, specific question was uh, you, that we went over the concept of uh, cooling, about how you uh, take the refrigerant and you compress it, and then you let it expand in another portion of the, the same loop. Uh, and that by uh, compressing and letting it expand and compressing and letting it expand, that sort of uh, cycle that gets created, which is shown here in this little diagram, this very drawn over uh, diagram, um, that allows you to alter the temperature because there's a direct relationship between the pressure of the refrigerant and the temperature of that same refrigerant. And this is the tool, this is the basic tool for how you do air conditioning. You know, when you're doing heating, you just burn something and it gets hot and then you take that heat and you move it around. But when you're cooling, it's really tricky because you can't just make something cool. You actually have to remove the heat, which sounds simple, but when you start sort of playing it out, it becomes a little complicated. Uh, and so the way that got figured out way back uh, in the early days of uh, the 20th century 
there were some even earlier examples where people kind of came up with similar ideas, but really became sort of commercially viable in the early days of the 20th century, was this idea of this relationship between pressure and uh, temperature for refrigerants. And so by compressing, hence you hear the term a compressor for an HVAC system, by compressing the refrigerant, you make it very hot. It is therefore hotter than the outside temperature. And so it will then give off heat to the outside. And then after it's done that for a while, you bring it in and you let it go through an expansion valve and it expands and it gets uh, much less pressure and it therefore becomes much cooler and it is now cooler than the inside temperature. So it takes on heat from the inside. And you just keep going in this cycle, taking on heat from the inside, taking it to the outside and giving it off. If same thing, if it's a window air conditioner versus a chiller system with a whole big cooling tower and the whole thing, it's all essentially the same. That basic system is always going to be at the root of 95% of the air conditioning uh, systems that are uh, out there. There's a few other uh, evaporative cooling systems and some other stuff that, that show up here and there, but m the vast majority is going to use this refrigerant loop. Um, so the basic question was, okay, we talked about it being um, 120 degrees on the one side, uh, and then uh, how much, what is the temperature of, of the uh, refrigerant when it's after it's gone through uh, the expansion valve on the other side? And uh, I, the example that I was using, it was actually talking about it being in the sort of 70 uh, degree range, um, though I wouldn't focus on the exact numbers. Um, in certain situations, the uh, refrigerant um, is, re is sort of required to be hotter in the compressor side and cooler on the um, evaporative side uh, than other situations. And so there's a whole range of different possibilities. It will always be within a certain range. So you won't see on the hot side it being kind of different from say 110 to 130, 100, I don't think it gets any higher than 130. Um, and on the uh, coolant side, it won't be any lower than about 50 uh, and would go up to maybe 70, 75, something along those lines. So there's a range of use, different refrigerants. R22 is a little different from the current one, which I always forget is R410A, I think is the current uh, uh, most used refrigerant. Um, and so some are built off of different refrigerants, and so they have to use what made sense for those refrigerants. So I wouldn't focus on the exact degrees, just that basic idea that it has to be hotter than the outside for it to be able to give off heat to the outside. And then when it's on the inside, it has to be cooler uh, than the inside so that it can take on heat from, from the inside. And that's how you're sort of able to pull that heat from the inside and give it to the outside, whether it's a window air conditioner or some big complicated multi-part system with a cooling tower on the roof. The basic gist of it is always the same. So definitely spend some time making sure you feel comfortable with that idea. Uh, and while I appreciate the wanting to be uh, specific about the exact uh, temperature, the exact degrees, I actually wouldn't worry about it. Uh, like I say, there's sort of a simple range and I would just keep it there because otherwise it, you're likely to make a mistake thinking that you're being more exact when in fact uh, it's an unnecessary exactness. So good question. I'm going to move on to the next one. 
Okay, uh, this is sort of a sort of general overarching um, question. When will Black Spectrals have new tutorials for the ARE 5.0? Uh, and then a uh, kind of related question, can you discuss the difficulty between ARE 4.0, ARE 5.0, and the differences between the vignettes and some of the new graphic uh, systems that they're going to be uh, talking about in 5.0? Uh, so I'm going to bring Mark in for this because we've recently been through a number of discussions, both uh, between us but also with NCARB. Uh, and we have a longer um, uh, webinar tutorial thing that's, uh, that focuses on this, so you should definitely check that out. But sort of for the short version, um, uh, let's bring in Mark to talk about when uh, the um, tutorials will be available for ARI 5.0. Mark, do you have any wise words you'd like to say about that? Yeah. So. We're going to focus on the two exams that are part of the um, kind of the overlap transition, um, the five test strategy. Um, so those are going to very likely um, be available sooner than the other uh, uh, sooner than the other uh, courses for ARE five. Um, so you'll see those two exam, uh, sorry, those two courses for those two exams that are involved in the the five test uh, transition strategy. Those will be available in um, sometime between August and September. And you guys should just know that in addition to building a, a full curriculum for ARE 5, a video tutorial based one, we'll also be developing um, uh, additional tools uh, to really round out the entire offering. So there's lots of stuff that's going on. Um, needless to say, there's we're, we're quite busy because yeah. uh, there's lots of great stuff that we're. It's very exciting, through. though. I think it's a great opportunity. We're we're very happy and excited that the the switchover is happening because it gives us this opportunity to kind of focus on it, and so that's great. Um, so, kind of regarding the specific question um, about 4.0 versus 5.0, um, so neither one is not necessarily better than the other. Uh, it really depends on who you are and where you are in the process. There are differences, though. So, like I said, there are other places where we go more in depth, but we'll just do a sort of short description here. Right now, under 4.0, uh, as everybody knows, the sort of gist of the situation is I have a whole series of individual exams about individual topics. Now, because it's architecture, any one individual topic actually has a tendency to sort of slip and slide over from one topic to another. Uh, for example, if you're talking about soil, uh, are you really talking about construction systems or are you talking about site planning? Uh, so even though it's in these individual silos, it still has a lot of slippage between one exam and another. But the gist of it is I have uh, an exam for structures, I have an exam for systems, I have an exam for contracts, I have an exam for site planning. Uh, and that uh, has the benefits for the person taking the exam that, okay, I can just sit down for three weeks and just totally focus on structures or totally focus on systems. Uh, and, you know, focus on that, take the exam, hope for the best, and then move on to the next thing. So there's certain big advantages to that. 5.0 is organized totally differently. So 5.0, instead of being organized in those silos, is actually essentially organized much more like an ar a typical architectural project. So uh, it has two sort of outlier exams, one that is sort of about how you run a practice, uh, and the other which is sort of a more of a kind of general, um, uh, how kind of in general how you run a, a, a project. So I have practice management and project management as these sort of two sort of outliers. 
But then there's four in a row that really are actually kind of logically thought of as in a row. Uh, and the first one is at the very beginning of a project. Uh, so you've just been awarded the project and now you're looking at the site, you're looking at the surveys, you're looking at like, well, what are the basic cost assumptions for, for this? So how, uh, you know, how are we gonna sort of think about that? But along with that, you would also be thinking about, all right, so you know, for this kind of project in this kind of location, I wonder what kind of structural system we would use. Is this gonna be a concrete system? Is it gonna be a long span system? Is it gonna be a steel system? Uh, so it'd be basic kind of structural, basic questions about how you would approach a project. Similarly with uh, systems, you'd be thinking about, all right, what, you know, we're right at the beginning of the project, what are our, our first assumptions given the program, given the location, given the sort of marketing that's local to that place, all of those kinds of questions. So it's in the beginning of a project, but it touches on contracts, touches on systems, touches on uh, structures, all of those things. Okay, now we get to the next one of the four. That's going to be kind of that design development kind of realm. You're really uh, kind of in the schematic design, design development. You're really starting to get into the detail. So now you're going to have all those same basic questions about structures, about systems, about uh, how it fits to the site plan. But now we're into the detail. Now we're starting to talk about, uh, well, how big a parking lot is that? And how many cars can I fit in that parking lot? Uh, we we, maybe we chose long span. All right, did we choose uh, long span uh, steel truss or did we choose long span uh, concrete uh, 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 precast or something? Um, so you're into the more of the kind of uh, specifics of the situation for that, that second one of those four exams. And then the third one is, all right, now you're effectively making the, uh, the bid set, the, the permit set. And so now we're talking about actual details. You know, how many uh, bolts, uh, maybe it's a structures question where you have to figure out how many bolts are needed um, or uh, is this um, steel beam uh, wide flange going to meet the needs of the, of the situation. You're getting into the like really specific, uh, can you now build it details. Well, same is going to be true with the contracts, same with the systems, same with the... So clearly what you're really talking about here is those three exams going across from, from the beginning to the middle to the, to the end of the architectural process are talking about everything. Uh, they're just focused on the sort of timeline of the project. The fourth one of those is, all right, now we're in the actual construction, and so it's the construction administration end of things. So there's going to be contracts questions for that. There's going to be structural questions for that. There's going to be systems questions for that that will be appropriate to that moment in the time of a project. So, all right, 4.0 silos, uh, 5.0 is more about the sort of stream of how a normal architectural project goes forward. Therefore, if you're somebody that really feels like I need to focus on, like I need to take, just read structures for a couple of weeks, I just don't get it, I really need to spend time doing that, well then 4.0 is going to make more sense for you uh, because you're going to have that ability to really focus in. Same with systems, same with all those contracts, all those same, same questions uh, hold. If you're somebody who is, maybe has a little more experience and you're kind of, you feel comfortable with the sort of fluidity of uh, talking about like a basic idea of structures, moving into it as a, a more detailed version, um, and then getting into the, the actual you know calculations and details, 
and same with uh, systems and same with contracts, understanding the sort of a general way that you would approach contracts in the beginning. Uh, and then there's a sort of meaningful uh, differences that you, how you would talk about it as you move through the project. If that sort of fluidity feels comfortable to you, well then 5.0 is absolutely sort of the right choice. Um, I actually think it's a, a very positive move on NCARB's part. I think that the switch to 5.0 makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's always felt a little false the way that the exams lined up with actual, the way that the, um, that the sort of world works in architecture. And I think the 5.0 is a, is a noble attempt to, to make that happen. I'm just not totally convinced that it actually is going to make your life easier uh, when you're studying for it. So uh, I think you need to sort of figure it out for yourself. How do I feel about this? Where do I fit into all of this? Uh, what makes sense for the way that I study? What makes sense for my background and, and how it fits? Um, and over the next uh, month or two, uh, there'll be lots more information. One of the things that's probably important to say is that the 5.0 will be starting to come uh, online at the end of this year. Um, they, I believe they still haven't given us an exact date, but presumably if you think of it as kind of Thanksgiving-ish, um, maybe a little after that. Uh, and then there'll be at least 18 months of uh, overlap where both uh, 4.0 and 5.0 are offered. So if, you, if you're in 4.0 now, you, can, you have plenty of time to finish it out in 4.0. If you decide you want to wait till 5.0, it'll start soon. One quick thing to say, which uh, shows up in one of these questions somewhere, but maybe we'll just talk about it now, is there's this uh, idea that you can jump, uh, do three of the exams in 4.0, and then do two of the exams in 5.0 uh, that will actually uh, cover effectively all of the topics. So you go from 4.0, which is seven exams, to 5.0, which is six exams, but you can actually do it in five exams if by following that. Uh, there's other places where we have it all written out. You can follow that, take a look for it. The one thing I would say for those folks who are interested in that idea is I think it's very clever. I think it's very smart that NCARB offers that. Um, I think it's, it's uh, the right move and it's very clever. Um, however, those two exams are going to be monster exams. Uh, and if you are used to the 4.0 kind of system, uh, it'll be a bit of a surprise uh, when you uh, come across those because those will be those two main ones uh, of the kind of design development into uh, CDs, and there's just a lot of information, systems, structures, contracts, all those things, and you're gonna have to be studying for all of that in order to take those two exams. And actually, let me add that, um, so those are the two exams that I was referring to, so we're gonna lead um, and publish those courses in August, September. Um, but to tack onto what Mike was saying, um, uh, you know, the the exam is is changing pretty dramatically. Like that question, there are some of the question types are the same. So some of them are multiple choice questions, but they're actually introducing uh, two or three new question types to replace the vignettes. Right. So, so the vignettes are gone. The, the the full vignettes are going to be completely gone. But then there are these new systems. And that's why I think, to Mike's point, um, studying for ARE five is going to be you're going to have to. Uh, spend a lot of time kind of understanding those new question types and, and how to answer them. It is kind of a different ball game. So yeah, and if you're if you've tr started taking 4.0 and you feel very comfortable with the vignettes and you're doing well with them, I would say finish it off in 4.0. Like it's sort of the devil you know. Uh, if you've been having trouble with the vignettes because maybe I know some people have had difficulty. They just like they just can't kind of vibe into it, uh, or they have uh, you know physical difficulties kind of maneuvering the this very awkward software. 
Um, if you're having trouble with the vignettes, well, maybe you wait till five. Um, but in general, my suggestion is just do it in 4.0, get it done. Um, so much more to say about that. We've got other places where we say uh, various things along those lines. Uh, but uh, we're happy to answer more questions at the end as well if you have any more. All right, I'm going to move on. Uh, here's a very specific one. Um, all right, so I'm just going to read it out. Uh, during the structural systems course in the wind calculations example video, uh, the um, I, the importance factor, uh, which was assigned in the example that, um, that we were using, was uh, assigned a 1.15 uh, um, value. Uh, but then it didn't show up in the final calculation. And uh, since I just saw this uh, a few minutes before we walked in, I actually haven't had time to go through and do the recalculation. Uh, but it's quite possible that I just made a mistake and didn't uh, include it in, um, in the number. So let me just say generally, uh, the I, the importance factor, shows up in a couple different places. It shows up in wind, it shows up in um, earthquake discussions, it shows up in, in even some other structures questions, there'll be the idea of the importance factor. And you, yeah, you, there's never any time when you don't count it. Um, so if, if I didn't count it, uh, my apologies, um, it would absolutely be, the, be in there. Now, it's not going to make a massive difference because the... Um, the, the way that uh, importance is assigned generally is, let, let's say you have a, an agricultural building that really just has like, uh, you know, storage of some uh, backhoes and, and combines or something like that in it and really doesn't have very many people in it. Uh, that is not going to be assigned a high importance value. So the idea there is uh, you're not, we're not going to force people to build incredibly robust buildings uh, that really just aren't as important and uh, there's not that much danger of people getting hurt uh, if something weird uh, like a, a tornado or something happened. Uh, so those have a very, very low importance factor, but the lowest it will ever go is about 0.6 or 0.75, kind of in that range. And the highest it's going to go is going to be kind of 1.15, 1.3, that kind of thing. So it, it ranges right around 1. Uh, and it's just sort of a way of kind of after you go through the calculation of saying, okay, we went through the calculation, but this is a hospital, we got to be really careful. Or this is a school, we want to make sure this thing lasts because people are going to use it as a, as a uh, community space, uh, especially when there's a, a big problem, plus we don't want the kids to get hurt. So we, it's just a way of tweaking the numbers to give more uh, robustness and importance to the buildings, police stations, hospitals, schools, uh, things like that. And if it's more of a kind of regular situation, house, uh, um, something along those lines, well, it's just one. We just leave the numbers as is. And if it's a uh, building that really doesn't matter that much uh, in terms of uh, worrying about uh, people getting hurt, well, then the number gets a little bit below one and it just sort of reduces the, the effect of the calculation a little. So absolutely it's included. It's not massively important in the sense that it's going to dramatically change the numbers. Um, but it is important uh, on the exam because it's an easy one to ask you about. So you really want to feel comfortable with that idea that uh, different buildings have different levels of importance. Uh, and therefore, uh, even though we go through a whole lot of calculations, it's essentially a factor of safety that's added onto those particular building types that are super important in an emergency situation. Okay, hopefully that was clear. Next one. All right, so here's one. Um, so uh, why do fire sprinklers have different color systems for the bulb uh, uh, 
than the color code. So I'm not 100% sure what that part of the question means, mm -hmm. but I just want to focus on the idea of the color system for the bulb. Um, that's the, the actual little part of the sprinkler head that gives off where it breaks open and the water actually comes out. Um, so the thing to say here is there are a lot of different types of sprinklers. Uh, so there are sprinklers that, um, uh, for example, in a uh, server space in a computer room, uh, I wouldn't want to have a water-based sprinkler system. Obviously, it would trash all the servers, and uh, the whole point of that room is to protect the servers. There's probably only one or two people in there. Uh, so you would use a system that would be uh, some sort of chemical-based system that the whole point is actually to take away the oxygen, right? So that's a different kind of, of sprinkler system. Uh, most places, the individual heads are going to go off in, uh, when, when there's a, a problem. But in certain places, you might find that uh, whenever there's a problem anywhere, all the heads go off. So that would be in a place like uh, the usual classic examples are like uh, uh, a hangar that has expensive airplanes in it. They just don't want to take the chance that the f you know one fire would get out of control. There's a lot of fuel around, things like that. So all the heads would go off all at once. Those are deluge systems, right? So there's lots of different kinds of systems of sprinklers, but even within each of those systems, there are different temperature ratings. So you can imagine that if you were in, uh, let's say, an office building, and in that office building uh, there was a, a big mechanical room or like the elevator mechanical room, something like that, elevator machine room, where uh, in that one spot, uh, they are sometimes, for, for various reasons, you get a sort of spike of heat, but it's not really a, a spike of heat that is... Um, meaningful, it's not actually saying there's really a problem, uh, then you wouldn't want to use a sprinkler head that went off at the same heat level as you would in the ones that are in kind of a general office space. Uh, in a general office space, if I get a spike of heat of 180 degrees or something like that, well, that's really hot, uh, and that means something weird is happening and you want something to respond. Um, whereas if I'm in the elevator machine room, actually I'm making this up, I'm not sure about elevator machine rooms, but something, a, a place like that that generates uh, a lot of heat and it has systems for dissipating it, but you know, you could easily have something or, you know, the end of an event and suddenly the elevators are all getting used constantly and it generates a, some unexpected level of heat, but it dissipates out and it's actually okay, right? So there are different kinds and they're color coded for the uh, level of heat they can tolerate uh, before they would go off. Um, I wouldn't worry about it beyond that. I don't think you need to memorize the specific colors. Um, it's, uh, I mean, feel free if you want to. Um, I certainly haven't um, and won't. Um, uh, there's no huge advantage. That's a, that's a level of detail that's just going to start to drive you crazy. Uh, if they ask you that very specific question, um, and I know it's easy for me to say it, I say guess and move on. I say guess red maybe. I think red's always a good one to guess uh, in that situation. Um, because it's just not worth memorizing that kind of stuff. Um, but it's sort of interesting to know that that exists, that there are different types, but then there's also different temperature ranges within each type. Uh, and that makes sense. You know, you wouldn't want to have uh, a commercial kitchen uh, have the system go off at the same temperature as you would in 
a bedroom or in an office space or something, right? Because the commercial kitchen, you could easily imagine spikes of heat uh, that uh, would be inappropriate uh, in, in those other spaces. Okay, so real quick on some of these other things. Um, uh, oh, it's also one of the, just kind of while it's worth noting here, um, most of the time when you are uh, walking through a building and you, have, you see all the exposed mechanicals, you can always tell the basic um, uh, sprinkler pipes because they're unpainted. Uh, so there tend to be black pipe. Different locations possibly might have slightly different uh, rules about that, but generally all the ones I've seen, it's always that they don't want you to pay, pay, paint uh, the pipes and that they use black pipes. And that's so that the fire marshals, when they're walking through the building, they can very easily and quickly see uh, everything. They can test it easily. They don't get uh, lost. Like they have a lot of stuff to cover. So they just want to make sure it's all there. So that's why generally you'll see that. You can actually get uh, them to approve you painting it if uh, you really need it for some reason. Um, but uh, for the most part, they really don't want you to do that. And mostly they don't want you to do that because they don't want you spray painting uh, near the heads and it gets clogged up, it starts causing troubles, you can make it so that the, the sprinklers don't actually work anymore, but also so that they can track it as they're moving through uh, a building that's under construction and make sure that you're uh, not doing something that's going to cause trouble. They can, they can actually see it very easily. Okay, so real quick on some of these other ones. Um, so sprinklers, like I said, there's lots of different types. When you use the word valve in this context, um, there's lots and lots and lots of different ways that that word gets used. So I'm just gonna kind of skip by that one um, and say that that's just any time there's something that can alter the flow of the water. Um, and so it's a place you can turn it off, it's a place you can uh, open it up, it's a place that you can connect to uh, um, a, uh, fire hydrant or a pumper truck, anytime I have that ability to move something, the change the flow, that's a valve. Um, so dedicated standpipe valve, and then the next one is combination standpipe and sprinkler valve. So the word there to know is standpipe. Standpipe is that vertical pipe. Generally, it's located by the stairs. Um, and the reason it's located by the stairs is because it needs to go all the way from the first floor uh, all the way up the building. So if you have a five or six story uh, building, you, the one place that you know will be continuously running all the way up is going to be the stair. Uh, and so you generally have it stand, uh, go, the standpipe goes right up by that. And the standpipe is a way, if you imagine firefighters running into a building in an emergency, uh, and if, they're, uh, if they tie their uh, fire hose to a um, uh, hydrant out on the street, and then they're carrying a full fire hose up the stairs. You can imagine how messy, how water gets everywhere, people are slipping and sliding. There's gonna be more people in the hospital from slipping on all the water than from the smoke or from the fire. Uh, so them running up, it's very difficult to do. It's really complicated. They're running by people who are trying to exit in a panic. Um, and so much, much easier is you attach to what's usually referred to as a Siamese connection. Um, on the street, that's how it'll be referred to, and that's usually because it comes out of the front of the building and then splits into two. Um, I'm sure that's a racist, ridiculous thing to say, so uh, I, they're probably trying to get rid of that. Um, but uh, when you hear the standpipe valve, that's what you're talking about. Um, that's where uh, the firefighters can show up, attach a hose to a hydrant or to their pumper truck, and then attach the other end to the standpipe, 
and then that pipe can fill with water running all the way right up next to the stairs. The firefighters can run up with an empty hose just over their shoulders. They run up to the floor where the fire is. They can attach to the standpipe at that floor and then fight the fire. Uh, so the standpipe becomes kind of part of that fire hose, if you will, and allows them to not have the fire hose tripping people uh, in the stairwell. Um, so it's by the stairs as a way to get it up vertically um, because you know the stairs are going to be going all the way vertically, but it's also by the stairs so that when the firefighters jump out of the stairs, bang, there's the standpipe right there. They don't have to find it somewhere in the, in the floor plan. So uh, standpipes, uh, you'll, you, they will be referred to um, uh, in lots of different ways, but that idea that you can attach at the street front and then it takes water vertically all the way through. So then the tricky one is the combination. Sometimes standpipes also work with the sprinkler systems. Um, and so that's when you have this sort of combination uh, sprinkler standpipe uh, situation. And so you will occasionally see very complicated standpipe valves out on the street front where it'll have a bunch of different, uh, it'll say this one's associated just for the standpipe, this one's a sprinkler standpipe, this one's a, you know, and it might have five or six or seven different ones, especially for complicated buildings like a school building or something like that. You could easily have multiples uh, for different types of uses uh, through, the, uh, through the building. So uh, back to the sort of colors, I wouldn't spend time memorizing them. Just know that there are these differences. Uh, you also may be interested, since this came up, um, you may be interested in the fact that hydrants are different colors. And those are different colors not from a temperature standpoint, but in terms of gallons per minute that they can produce. Uh, so if you see different uh, fire hydrant colors around the city, that's just referring to uh, how much water they have the capacity to pump out. So that way when firefighters show up, they can make a quick decision about how much water is literally going to be able to be brought to bear and whether they need to attach to multiple hydrants or something along those lines. Um, again, I wouldn't worry about the specific colors, just know that that exists. Okay, so here's a process question. Uh, so below is a question dealing with the rolling clock and how it may affect having to retake the ARE for initial registration based on a hypothetical scenario. Uh, let's assume candidate is able to pass all of the seven under 4.0, seven ARE exams within a year. Uh, of passing the first one uh, and then for some reason um, that are reasons that are beyond this person's control, uh, it takes them eight years to complete IDP. So it takes them eight years to get all the sort of paperwork end of things kind of completed. Uh, and uh, by the time that they get all that done and they're ready to do uh, the initial registration, uh, they realize that eight, eight years have elapsed uh, and at that moment, would they need to retake the ARE? Um, so there's a couple of things to say about this. First of all, uh, neither Mark nor I are experts on uh, IDP, ARE per each individual state, uh, all of that kind of stuff. There's a lot of variation. You actually become licensed by the state. And so clearly that's it, more than 50 because there's also uh, territories. Uh, that's more than 50 different, uh, subtly different versions of how these things go. So you absolutely want to find out about it for your particular state before I would trust anything that I would say. Um, the gist of what I'm going to tell you though here is the rolling clock is one issue and then the timeline from when you finish your exams to when you finish, uh, when you uh, 
have everything else finished and uh, actually get the initial uh, registration, um, it, those are two separate numbers. Um, you can actually get them to extend your rolling clock if you've finished everything, but you have to ask for it. Uh, and they have the ability to say no for if they don't think your reasons are good enough. Um, but if you have reasonable reasons, they will extend it. Um, but uh, same with the length of time from when you finish the exam to when you actually become licensed. Um, some places, I think it's as short as a year. Other places, uh, I believe it's maybe two years. There might be a three-year area. Um, so it's actually kind of a big, uh, big deal. You should absolutely know your local version of that. Um, but it is actually two separate questions. Um, there are a couple of other rolling clocks in there as well. So uh, I would definitely kind of talk to your local folks. The best way to do it, the people who you really need to talk to are your local state uh, licensing board. So if you're in Colorado, it's probably the Colorado Professional Regulation Board or something like that. Um, and, and guys, we have a, um, I'll share a link to this. We have a, uh, a blog post that, has, that links to all the um, 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 state uh, licensing boards, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I'll share that with you. So uh, yeah. whatever state you're in, you can click on that and you can find the right person to talk to. I'll share it in the GoToWebinar panel here. And uh, that is actually the, you know, the actual place you should go. I would, it's probably easier, frankly, to go just talk to your local AIA chapter. There's mm -hmm. probably somebody there who is an expert on what happens in that local area. Uh, they're, pr they're dying to help uh, young architects get licensed. Uh, they will absolutely be very helpful in that process. Uh, also, most universities have somebody who's sort of their IDP uh, uh, sort of go-to person. Uh, you can track those people down. So there's a lot of people out there who can, who can help you answer the question. It's just that it, it's so similar across the board, but then there are these subtle differences, which is why we're being a little cagey about answering it, because we don't want to tell you one thing and have it be wrong. So talk to the folks at your local AIA, uh, and then uh, talk to the local state licensing board for um, ar professional architects. Often they're grouped together, so they'll say something like professional regulation. Sometimes it's just architects. All right, hopefully that was helpful. All right, uh, we've got a couple different questions here. I'll probably pick and, few, pick and choose a few. Um, what kind of lights should be used on public streets? Uh, so let's talk about that one for a second. That's a kind of an interesting one. Uh, if you were asking me this question even a year ago, uh, I would say absolutely HIDs, high intensity discharge lights. Uh, so uh, metal halides, uh, sodium, um, sodium discharge lights. Um, there's a whole series of, of HID lights, high intensity discharge lights that are super efficient don't necessarily have the best color rendering, but like really who cares, it's a public street. Um, they're very efficient, long lasting, and uh, uh, just completely make sense for that kind of use, that kind of low level use where you're, you're just, you need to get a lot of light because it's probably pretty high up in the air uh, and it's gonna cover a pretty big area. Um, and the high intensity discharges they operate kind of similar to how a fluorescent operates. They're actually in the same family of lighting fixtures, um, but they're, they're sort of a little different, a little more specific. Uh, their big downsides is they don't turn on fast, but that doesn't matter for a public street. You know, you don't need it to like come on in, in uh, half a second. Uh, if it takes four or five minutes for it to turn on, that's fine. 
Um, so high intensity discharge is the likely answer. In actuality, in the last year, two years, six months, I've actually seen quite a lot of um, articles about how cities are moving over to these brand new LEDs. It took a long time for the LEDs to sort of find their markets uh, in ways that um, could fit to the needs that people were, were having. Uh, and the thing that the municipalities love about the LEDs for public streets uh, is that the, the advantage, people always think that the LEDs are much more energy efficient than uh, like HIDs. And for the most part, they're not really. Um, from what I've seen, the LEDs are pretty close, but actually not as efficient. But the big advantage that they have, they probably will become more efficient as, as they get better. But um, the big advantage they have right now is they last longer. And if you are a municipality and you can have a situation where uh, instead of having to change the street lights uh, every three years or every five years or something, if you can do it every seven years, that's a big cost difference from uh, just the man hours. Uh, so I honestly don't know whether the exam is caught up uh, to the LEDs on that kind of thing. So I would think of those two. I think if they offer LEDs, it's, that's probably the answer. If LEDs isn't offered, then HIDs would be the logical answer. Uh, all right, let's see. Yeah. Um, So what are the properties of non-cohesive soils? Um, actually, I'm going to jump uh, to the previous one. Um, what happens in phase one versus phase two? I'm assuming this is an environmental phase one that the question is about, an environmental phase two. Um, so if you're uh, somebody who uh, has just bought uh, a piece of land or is in the process of buying a piece of land, and you're talking to the seller and the seller has to tell you some piece of information because that's the law, you can't hide things. And the seller tells you, uh, oh, by the way, there you know, used to be a manufacturing thing on this site that made uh, adhesives. Uh, and you'd be like, wow, adhesives, that sounds toxic. Um, I'll bet there's a lot of problems on the site. Uh, do you have a phase one? Um, and what the phase one would tell somebody um, and if they didn't, you might get it, but somebody would have to get the phase one in that situation. The phase, environmental phase one is going to be a situation where a uh, sort of knowledgeable uh, entity, there's a, companies that do this work, specifically environmental uh, engineers, uh, would go out and do not testing, but they would do um, kind of a walkthrough, take a look at what they saw. Uh, they would do a, an analysis of the um, historical records of the site. Uh, and so they would kind of do a paperwork and kind of quick walkthrough version of an environmental analysis. Uh, if when they're walking through, they see things that they absolutely know, like the classic one is the nine by nine uh, floor tiles, which usually have asbestos in them, uh, or they see pipe wrap that has asbestos, or they see what there's kind of the remnants of old tanks of, of uh, uh, what might be toxic uh, chemicals uh, around the site, something like that. If they see it, if they physically see it, well, then that goes into phase one. And that either tells people that they should do or not do whatever they're going to do next, but it would effectively kick in the need to have a phase two. Um, if they do the walkthrough, they don't see anything, but then they do the paperwork uh, stuff and they look around, they find all the historical data, and they realize, oh, wait, this, you know, this is definitely a place that is a likely place where there's a problem, 
then that would kick in the phase two. Um, but if they do the walkthrough and they do the, the sort of quick analysis of all of the uh, historical data and they don't see anything that seems like a smoking gun, then there's really no need to do the phase two. Uh, and you sort of hope for the best, and it's sort of a way that you, people can not get sucked into huge costs in environmental um, uh, analysis uh, and uh, still you know, kind of keep a project rolling along. But if anything tips, a, tips it off and it says, no, this looks, looks kind of dangerous, we haven't done the test yet, but this seems like there's a problem, then you do the phase two. The phase two is much uh, more expensive and much more specific, and they'll go through and test everything, send it to testing agencies, uh, and maybe you have to do digging on the site to find tanks in the ground or whatever it happens to be. They'll look for everything uh, and test everything, test the soils, test the paint, test the uh, 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 pipe wrap, all of that stuff. Uh, so it's a much more involved, much longer process. Um, but then uh, what comes out of it is the environmental report, and that phase two environmental report will have all sorts of information, not only about what was found, but also about the best way to tackle it. So if encapsulation makes sense, it'll say we recommend encapsulation for these areas and not for these areas. If uh, removal makes sense, then they'll talk about that. It's sort of uh, a, a big sort of what's there, what's the problem, and how to deal with it um, uh, process. Whereas the phase one, fairly simple, keep it, keep it nice and easy. Um, people can figure out whether they really need to go to the phase two or not, uh, but it kind of gets you to, to that spot where you can make a reasonable decision. All right, I'm going to keep moving on. We'll come back to those if we have a little time at the end. All right, uh, Michael asks, what is your advice and or do you have a state of mind rules of thumb? I like that, Michael. Uh, for how we should be thinking when taking the PPP and CDS exam. Um, I'm having difficulty answering multiple choice uh, situational questions because I'm projecting what I would do uh, or have already done in real practice versus what the AIA wants me to do to pass the exam. Distinguishing the two is my biggest challenge. I know, that the, con uh, I know the content, but I can't uh, really interpret the questions and answers correctly. I'm always able to narrow down to a couple of choices, um, but they seem equally acceptable with the uh, uh, in terms of the question. Uh, so it always brings me to a kind of, well, it depends. Um, uh, is there a way to clarify the question? If I had a way to hit a clarify the question button on the exam, I would hit it. I love that idea. Um, I, we should suggest that to NCARB. Uh, am I overthinking this? So my first response is, if you say to yourself, I wonder if I'm overthinking this, I can almost guarantee you, you're overthinking it. Um, so the short answer to your question is, we all work in a real world, but the exam can't really be about the real world uh, because the real world is so real and so different in so many different places. And it's not really the point, right? The point of the exam is to say, this is how contractually things make sense, right? So let me I'll give you a quick example. Um, in the contracts, it's very clear that the architect's role, if you look at the B101 compared to the A101, which is the contractor's contract, the architect's role is for the design intent. The contractor's role, among a few others, is for the means and methods. It's for actually making that design manifest. Uh, so there's all sorts of things that that means. One of them is 
if there's a safety issue on the site, uh, it is not the architect's role to comment about it or to do anything about it. Uh, the site means and methods, that mean, includes how they do it, whether it's safe or not, all of that stuff falls under the contractor's needs, uh, uh, pro uh, duties. So if you walk onto a job site and there's no, there's a big ditch on one side and there's no railing to stop, a temporary railing to stop people from falling into the ditch while they're moving uh, uh, know, lumber around or something, and you stand there and you say, wow, this is really dangerous, you should put a railing here, technically you just usurped the liability for all the safety issues on the site because you became an expert and said, I am now taking over liability of the safety issues on the site by telling you, put a railing here. Which in that one example, is probably not a big deal, but then three months later when something else happens and the contractor tells their insurance company, well, that guy did say something about the railing a while back. Suddenly, that insurance company says, oh great, that means we don't have to pay this. That means their insurance company has to pay this. Uh, and it could become a really big problem. So there are very clear rules. If you see a question that says, uh, you see a safety problem on the site, you know, should, A, should I call the owner? B, should I do? The answer is always gonna be the least thing um, because it's not your role to do it. Okay, real world? Really, I'm going to stand there and let somebody fall down into a, a shaft or into a big ditch and, and hurt themselves? No, of course I'm going to mention something to somebody. But I'm going to know because I've read the contracts and I've been through this before and I've talked to people about it that that's an issue. And so I'm going to be very careful about how I talk about it. Right? The real world situation, like I'm not going to let somebody get hurt. Right? That doesn't make any sense. But it also doesn't make sense to just ignore the realities of the contracts. So uh, that's a long way of getting to, uh, yeah, there is the real world. That is not what the question is about. The question is about how does NCARB and the AIA and frankly, the lawyers for the AIA think you should answer the question. So I always suggest people when they read the questions, you should never think, just as a mindset issue, you should never think, uh, gee, I wonder what the right answer is. You should always be thinking, I wonder what the answer they want is. It's just a different way of approaching it, and it's hugely impactful if you think of it in that way. Uh, another sort of quick example along those lines, I, I, many, some of you have probably heard me say this before. Um, I think that this is long enough ago that I, I'm past the statute of limitations, I can actually use this example. Uh, back when I took the exam in the uh, mid-90s, um, I think 20 years gets us past uh, anything. Uh, the, one of the questions came, and it was about a historical question, and it asked about who developed uh, the first um, uh, grid plans for uh, cityscapes. Like who came up with, a, with grid layout for cities? Uh, and the various answers, there was a couple different, there was like medieval England, um, there was the Greeks, there was somebody else, and there was a, some Chinese thing. Um, and the answer they were looking for was clearly the Greeks, right? It's definitely not medieval England. It definitely wasn't whatever the other one was. But I happened in my undergrad, worked for one of my professors who had done this sort of archeological architectural project very specifically about this one very interesting um, ancient Chinese uh, city that was essentially a grid layout way before the Greeks. 
Uh, and so I was sitting there thinking, ah, I got this one. I know the answer to this one. And then I fortunately stopped and said to myself, wait a minute, I have to be the only person in this room, and back, this is back when we all did it together, this room is filled with like 400 people, that would know that answer. That can't possibly be the answer they're looking for. They clearly want the standard, yeah, it was the Greeks, right? That's how you have to think about it. Not what is the right answer, but what is the answer they want me to answer. Uh, so I hope that helps. Uh, don't overthink it. The uh, worst thing you can get is starting to get into that cycle of having, uh, you know, worrying about each answer and like going back over it and back over it. Uh, having that albatross on you will absolutely make you make mistakes because you'll start overthinking. You'll be reading too much into it. You just want them to take your best guess, first draft. What do they? What do I think they want me to answer? Answer that one. Move on. It's totally plausible you could have just gotten a bunch of questions that you just didn't know the answer to. There's a lot of questions out there. The next, next round you get, quite likely you'll get a bunch of questions that you actually do know the answer to. Don't overthink it. Don't make it a bigger deal than it needs to be. All right. That probably didn't help at all. All right, <laughs> here we go. Uh, why doesn't NCARB provide a breakdown of a passing grade in an exam? I suspect that to pass an ARE, you don't need level one performance in each category. Uh, depending on how you perform on the other categories. Is it possible that you uh, score a level two in one category and level ones in all the others? What do you think? So um, there is actually quite a bit to say about this. Uh, I'm only going to touch on it uh, briefly because it starts getting into a lot of statistical numbers and things. The gist of the situation is um, the current version right now is you have three categories, one of which is passing, two of which are not passing. Um, one of the not passing is very close to the edge, and the other one is you really didn't pass. Um, and uh, the issue there is, let's say there's four categories, and let's say of the four categories, uh, you got three ones, so three passing, but then you got one that was either a two or a three, so didn't pass. And then you didn't pass the overall exam. You're like, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. I got three ones, and then uh, on this one out of the four, I, I got a non-passing. Like, that, that doesn't make any sense. I should have passed that. Well, maybe, but maybe not, because it kind of depends. You know, the passing doesn't say you passed by a lot. It just says you passed. If you passed just barely on all three of those, and the, the one that you got the non-passing on was maybe a, like it was divided into these four categories, but maybe that one category was actually 50% of the questions. Uh, like there's different categories and some are larger and some are smaller. So you may have not passed on the biggest category. So uh, it's actually, they've kind of decided this isn't terribly useful for people, uh, but it is the way that they're doing it now. So 4.0 is gonna stay like this, but under 5.0, they're actually gonna change it. So in 5.0, there'll be two passing categories. There'll be one, two, where one is totally passed, two is passed but close to the edge, and then there'll be two failing categories, three and four. So three close to the edge um, but, but failing, and then four completely blew that one. So uh, presumably that one extra category will make it easier to sort of understand uh, you know, really where you, where you fit into that as a process. Um, okay, and now I'm going to say the, the heretical thing. Um, 
I know this is super important to people. I know it's crazy when you think you should have passed something and you didn't. I actually wouldn't really focus too much on those things. I think there's so many reasons why you can pass or not pass an exam uh, that I would just choose to think of the taking the exam as a learning experience. Uh, take what you can get out of like what, how did it feel to answer the questions, what felt like you were doing it right, what felt like was a problem, and then just take it again. Um, you know, I know it costs money, but uh, it's really not a big deal uh, other than the money. It's really not a big deal to take it again. Nobody, no future employer is going to know you took something three times, something like that. It doesn't matter. Uh, it's a good way to get to know the exam just by taking it. And people are always asking me, well, how many do I need to pass in order to, to, to pass? Uh, and the answer is pass as many of them as you can. Uh, you know, I, I know it's easy for me to say and harder to hear. I just don't think it's a useful way of spending your time uh, kind of going through it. I, I, in specific situations, I see why you might want to know like, all right, I seem to get passing grades in all of these issues, but then there's this one area uh, that I always have a problem in. I should spend more time on that. That's what that, those numbers are useful for. Uh, I wouldn't worry about it in terms of anything other than that. Okay, uh, Tina and Kyle have a couple uh, questions here, similar. Um, what advice do you have for someone that uh, just isn't getting the NCARB way of asking questions? Am I reading too much into these questions or not enough? And Kyle, what is the best way to study for CDNS, um, especially in the two areas of uh, construction drawings and project manual and project practice and management? Um, so Tina, I'm going to essentially say uh, exactly what we just said to the last uh, thing, if last question. Um, if the issue is whether you're overthinking it, you probably are. Um, I would really just try to focus on kind of narrowing down what the question is really about. Um, and also, you know, think about how fast these questions need to be gone through. Like if you have uh, 90 questions in, um, you know, 100 minutes or uh, 90 questions in, in 80 minutes or something, uh, you know, that's right about one minute per question. So you really need to be answering these things in about 45 seconds, something like that. Each question, each exam is a little different, so look at it for yourself about finding those numbers, but, um, but that's pretty fast. And if you find yourself working on a question uh, in that kind of scenario and it's taking you a minute, a minute and a half, two minutes, you know, guess and move on. Um, it's, it's not, any one question is not important enough to throw your game off for the rest of the questions. Um, so again, don't overread into it, don't over worry about it. Just take the questions as best you can. Eventually you'll get the right bunch of questions and you'll be able to answer them. Okay, Kyle's uh, thing about uh, construction drawing and project manual and the project pr and practice management. Um, this one, absolutely the go-to spot to study for this is the uh, book that the AIA puts out, which is called the uh, um, Handbook for Professional Practice. There are about 15 different versions of it. There's a student version, there's like a big version, there's like a slim kind of summary version. There's, there's a whole bunch of different versions. Really, any of them will be fine. The one thing I would say is um, uh, they redo the uh, contracts every 10 years on the seven. So the last time was in 2007. The next time will be in 2017. Uh, and so if you're using one from 2004 or 2002 or something, uh, you, you know, 
take some of the specifics a little bit with a grain of salt. They're, they're likely to be slightly different, not much different, but slightly different than a more current one. Um, but I guarantee either the office you work in has a copy of this, or you can go borrow it from the local AIA office or somebody you know, a friend has a copy because the office they have, that they work in has it. You can find a copy of this book, absolutely, Handbook of Professional Practice. Almost all of the questions are straight out of there for those, those portions of the exam. Um, it doesn't mean it'll be a straight, you know, read page 15 and that's the answer to, to question number six. Um, it, you know, you have to kind of think it through but the, the gist of the information is all in there. It's also a great book to have. Um, I think the student version is like maybe 60 bucks or 70 bucks, and the more professional versions are probably in the kind of 120, 140 range, something like that. Um, I haven't bought one for a little while, but it's something along those lines. Um, uh, so absolutely get your hands on, on those. Newer, the better. Um, if you are just starting the process, uh, I'm sure the new ones for 2017 will be even better because they'll include the newest version of the contracts. Uh, okay, Sandra asked, how effective is a green roof in terms of leaking and humidity uh, coming in, into the building in states like Florida where we have heavy rain? Um, and also pricing and some of the other options. So green roofs are really kind of intriguing. Um, the reason that people like green roofs uh, there, there are direct advantages to a building owner, uh, especially in a hot climate. Uh, the, the evaporative aspect of how a green roof can absorb water and then let that water evaporate away can be very meaningful in terms of sort of general cooling. Um, it doesn't always work that way if the humidity is so high that it actually never evaporates. Uh, then it's not helping, um, but it has the ability to sort of act in cooling. In colder climates, uh, the green roof uh, creates a, a sort of distance. It's not really insulation. People often talk about it as insulation, but you know, wet dirt is not going to give you a very high R value, so it's not insulation in the same way that we think of as other forms of insulation. Um, but it creates a, a, a barrier, a distance, for the wind, cold wind blowing across a roof, which can pull the heat out of a building. Uh, and so it affects buildings pretty dramatically. But frankly, that's not really why there's a big push for green roofs. The big push for green roofs is actually not so much helping the individual building owner, it's helping the municipality. Because what we've done is we've made buildings and parking lots all over our suburbs and cities uh, that effectively capture water and then send it somewhere. And so we're capturing huge, huge, huge quantities of water, putting it into pipes, sending it long direction, long distances uh, to then be filtered. And every time we put a new parking lot, every time we put a new roof, we're putting more water into those systems and we're just completely overcharging uh, the systems that we have. Uh, we have so much built uh, area. And so the idea of the uh, permeable pavers for parking lots allows water to just come down, hit the parking lot, and instead of being collected, to just filter itself right through the soil, stay on the site, and therefore not increase the, the overall needs for the municipality, um, which is meaningful because when you do that, that's also where a lot of the floods are coming from, people's basements getting flooded out because their systems are combined systems and you get a big rain and all that water has to go somewhere and it pushes through and it pushes the sewage into people's houses. 
and those people vote, and so they get mad, uh, and things go haywire. Um, so there's lots of effort to stop the sort of over-supercharging of our systems. Um, so permeable pavers would be the one on the ground. Green roofs are the ones for the rooftops. The big advantage of them is that they can absorb massive amounts of, uh, of heavy rain and then over time slowly give that uh, water off in like three different ways. One way is that it will eventually start to um, evaporate into the air so it goes back up into the clouds. Uh, another way is it gets used by the plants and then as the plants use it, it becomes evaporative again in some other way. Uh, and then the third way is it just sort of absorbs like a giant sponge, a huge amount of water, and then some of it will get used and evaporative, and some will sort of eventually drip down to the bottom and find its way out and, and go to a, a gutter and that sort of system. Um, but it'll be a much, much, much smaller percentage, and it will be delayed so that the big problem is when you have a big storm, that huge rush of water, well, this is effectively taking away a big chunk of that water, but also delaying the rest of it so that it actually gets to the system, to this uh, drainage system, well after the storm has gone by and after there's a big problem. So, weirdly, the green roofs, not that meaningful to building owners, but are very meaningful to code officials and uh, the people who run the municipalities in terms of uh, making everything kind of work effectively. That's why they started showing up a few years ago on, in the codes and in the zoning codes and that they would give uh, a lot of overlay stuff where if you put a green roof in, you get, you know, you, maybe you uh, can have an extra residential unit or you can build a little bit bigger of a building, that kind of thing. That they're trying to make green roofs um, economically viable for people because it is so advantageous to the towns. Um, the specific meaningfulness uh, in a place like uh, Florida because of the humidity levels. Uh, the thing to say about green roofs, like any roof, if you build a roof well, uh, it shouldn't leak. Uh, the biggest problem with green roofs, this has actually happened to me, is that we had a roof, we just put in a green roof and then it started to leak and the clients went kind of ballistic and I went and talked to the folks who put the roof in and I said, hey, your roof is leaking. And the guy said, no, it isn't. I guarantee it's not leaking. And we went and we took off all of the green roof. And we sprayed the roof with water for, I uh, forget what it was, uh, eight hours or something like that. Um, and no water came through. And we finally realized there was a little tiny plastic line going to the ice maker in the refrigerator that because of the way it was set up, it had to go up into the ceiling and over and down. And somebody had nicked it with a screw uh, or nail or something and that's where the water was coming from and you have never seen a roofer more happy than that moment when we found out uh, that that thing. Um, so that's the big problem with green roofs is that it's a hassle if something goes wrong you gotta move all that stuff around but they actually are protective of the roof you're less likely to have a leak if the green roof is there you don't have the sun beating down on it, the UV rays, you don't have a ice and other things kind of affecting the, the roof. So it actually is better for the roof uh, and less likely to leak, but if it does leak, it's a bigger problem. So there you go. Wanna do one more? All right, one more. Ah, we'll, we'll pick and choose a couple out of this one. How about, um, all right, uh, one quick one. How about uh, what is an Alta survey? So Alta surveys, so when the word survey is kind of fascinating 
because it, uh, it has a lot of different meanings. Clearly, we're talking about when we say survey in this context, we're talking about when a surveyor gives uh, and a, a building owner uh, the legal description of the land. And so uh, that can mean a lot of different things. And it depends completely on how much you're paying for effectively. Um, you could have uh, a building owner say that, you know, we don't really care about anything other than the boundary survey. We just need to know where the property lines are. Uh, you know, maybe they just down the road want to be able to figure out where the, where the parking lots can go or something like that, and they don't need to have anything else. Well, that's fine. So that's a survey. A boundary survey is a survey. You might have a boundary survey that includes uh, what my, one of my favorite terms, the improvements, which would be anything that ever got built on that site. So you have a main building, maybe some accessory buildings, uh, sidewalks, parking lots. Those are all considered improvements. I always like that because um, you know I've seen an awful lot of buildings that sure seem more like scars than improvements to me. But the technical term we use is those are improvements. Um, so you might get a, a more detailed survey that includes all the buildings. Okay, well, we also might get a, a survey that includes where the gas lines are in the street. We might get a survey that includes uh, the topography, because that topography does not come automatically in a survey. You have to actually ask for it, and it costs more because it's a lot more time-consuming. I might get a survey that has the topography, the gas lines, and locates all the trees, or maybe all the trees with a caliper bigger than six or something. Um, so, like, there's all sorts of different levels of surveys that you can get. So the Alta survey, the all that is is uh, I forget exactly what Alta stands for, but it's the uh, American Land Title Association or something like that. So that's uh, a group of lawyers, effectively, who uh, are talking about title of land, and they realized, well, you know, in a lot of different contracts here and there. Uh, somebody says, all right, you have to have a, a survey. Well, maybe the seller doesn't want to spend the money on a complicated one, and so they just do a boundary survey, but that doesn't show anything useful to the other people, and so, but it was contractually meeting the thing in need of a survey. So they came up with this idea of the Alta survey, and there's nothing particularly meaningful about it. It's just, it's a survey type that has a uh, series of specific issues that you know will always be covered. So it'll have the boundary shown, it'll have uh, any of the improvements shown, it'll uh, typically show where the uh, main um, gas and water and all of that is. And there's a few other sort of items like that. Uh, but it's just sort of a grouping of, uh, of issues that that way the lawyers know that all of the stuff that, that will be needed is, is part of it. It doesn't necessarily include everything. It, the Alta survey wouldn't include the location of the trees or the, the topography or these other things. It just is sort of this basic, um, but uh, um, it's kind of all the things you would normally need for a commercial project. Most of the time for residential, I wouldn't actually bother with an Alta survey. I'd do a simpler, cheaper version. Um, but for commercial, almost all of the, the commercial real estate people will require an Alta survey. So it's nothing particularly meaningful, it's just a grouping of issues, uh, so that way all the lawyers feel that they've got everything covered. All right, let's see. Uh, talked about HID bulbs a little bit. Um, 
sun chart. Let's just do very quickly on the sun chart. Um, I think there's other places where we can get deep more deeply into it. Um, but uh, the gist of talking about a sun chart, uh, if I have uh, a, uh, that's supposed to be uh, cardinal points north, uh, so north is up there and south is down here, um, and the sun is sort of going up and over. If you think about it, um, right at the sort of equinox, uh, so uh, at the kind of height of spring and fall, it's effectively going to be coming, um, uh, rising in the east, the sun will be rising in the east and kind of going right up and over towards the west. In the winter, it's going to rise from below that east-west line, and it's going to come up more like that. Um, it's hard to draw in three dimensions, so I'm, I'm not giving it uh, all that great of a justice here, but in the summer, it's going to start higher than the east-west line, uh, and it's going to go even higher up in the sky and then down. So uh, from the point of where that building is, uh, the charts are going to tell you that at different times of the year, the sun angle is going to be different. There's two different aspects to where that sun is placed in the sky. Uh, so one of them is, let's say, uh, well, let's say I'm going to do this spot right here. I think it might be easier to read. So let's say that spot right there. So one question is, uh, how high off of the horizon is that? So here's our, our land, there's our building, uh, there's the sun, right? And there's an angle right there. And that's called the solar altitude. But the other thing you need to know in order to place this sun in the three-dimensional grid of the sky, it's a big sky, so it's hard to talk about without this, is where is it in terms of the cardinal points? So at any given moment, so this would be in the late afternoon, um, if we kind of took a straight line down and then drew, when it hit the horizon, drew a line back uh, towards the, our, our, the point that we're kind of doing this from, that would be the azimuth. And the azimuth is the angle off of the cardinal point. Uh, now, weirdly, um, the angle off of the cardinal point can be off of any cardinal point. So you can actually have an azimuth off the west or off of the north or off of the east. But almost always, for architects, we talk about it, at least in North America, we talk about it as the um, cardinal point off of south, because that's where it's useful. Uh, and so with those two numbers, you can say, all right, it's the winter, it's late afternoon, this is going to be a fairly low angle because the winter sun is low, uh, and so I'm going to have a not very high solar angle. Uh, and it's late in the afternoon, and we know that the sun sets uh, in the late afternoon, so it's going to be fairly far towards the west. Uh, and so those two numbers, we could place that sun very, very quickly and easily. Uh, equally, if we were talking about the sun rising on a, a hot summer day, it's actually going to be rising north of east, um, and then it'll be going way up high. So we're going to have a very different azimuth, and we'd have a very different um, solar angle. The solar angle might be close to 90, uh, if not 90. Um, and so it's because way straight up in the air. Uh, and then the off of south, the azimuth, would be more than 90 because it's actually north of that, that main east line. So when you're using those charts, that's, those two numbers are telling you where that sun is uh, and it sounds super complicated, but it's actually not. Uh, once you sort of get a hand, handle on it, it's actually pretty straightforward. 
Uh, I have always used the Ching books because they have a couple of very simple diagrams that are totally readable and understandable. Uh, another book that I always use for this kind of thing is Sun, Sun Wind, Wind and Light. Um, I always have to look to Mark because I can never remember the exact name of it. Um, it's a great book, very, very simple diagrams, uh, kind of pen drawings, um, uh, and gets a lot of this information across very, very simply and clearly. So I would definitely recommend checking those things out uh, to get more information on those. From these, you can actually now, because you now, once you sort of understand that, you can very easily look up uh, in graphic standards and lots of other places. Uh, here's a time of day, here's a, um, a latitude. Uh, what would be the solar angle and the azimuth you know, in this location? Uh, and so those charts will actually tell you all of that information. But you can also just kind of figure it out. Um, you can get pretty close just by kind of imagining it in your head. Uh, it's different in the winter than it is in the summer. It's different uh, uh, in the morning than it is in the afternoon, right? It's all pretty straightforward. You know how the sun works. Now it's just putting it into numbers. Right, on the next one, just to see. Okay, we're going to take a quick look at this. Um, all right, this is a, this is a question about um, the current uh, 4.0 uh, vignettes. And this is kind of an issue one. This one comes up a lot. And um, so there's a couple things to say about this. So, so real quick, NCARB response on having trouble getting the lines to land where, where she wanted them to land on the PPP vignette. Uh, quote, everything snaps to an invisible grid. Behind the scenes, you would appreciate why this is so. This was the response from uh, NCARB. Um, and then the sort of response to that is like, well, wh how, what does that mean? It's uh, like, how do I get it to go where I want it to go? So there's a couple things to say about this. One of them is um, that there is a little bit of uh, slippage that's allowed in the vignette. So uh, if you are trying really hard to get one thing to line up with another thing, and you just can't get it to happen, even if you zoom in and you just can't, for whatever, it's snapping to the wrong thing or something, you just can't get it to line up, presumably that means that you're actually closer in than is necessary and it's not expecting you to be that exact. Of course, it could also be that your computer is messed up, right, at the training testing center or some other thing, right? But the way that they would answer it is there's a little bit of slippage and they are not expecting you to be exact right on the money all the time. It's an awkward program, they know that, They've set it up in that, in that way, not that it makes it harder, but they've set it up where there's a range of acceptable uh, sort of reasonableness. Obviously, if you're in one of the vignettes where um, things are tighter and closer in um, and, and smaller in scale, like the stair vignette or something like that, that the snapping range is going to be um, closer, tighter. Uh, whereas if you're in the site planning, uh, you have a little bit more room in terms of the sort of how many inches you can be off. Um, so in general, if you're really battling the program, my suggestion is just don't battle it. Get as close as you can and move on um, because that probably is beyond what they are expecting. Um, it's actually kind of an interesting moment to talk about some of the stuff that's coming. Uh, this is also going to be true with uh, the 
new drawing versions that are going to be coming in place of the vignettes. The vignettes are going to be totally gone. In, in their place will be things like, um, uh, okay, here's a wall section uh, and uh, over to the right is um, a, uh, uh, flashing. some flashing and you have to put the flashing into the wall section. Um, so you're going to physically move the flashing into the wall section, right? And you're going to get it pretty close, but obviously everybody's going to put it in slightly different locations, and it should understand that. It should understand that there's a little bit of wiggle room. They actually, NCARB actually used the word wiggle room when they were talking to us about it. Now, each different situation will be slightly different, amount, different amounts of wiggle, and of course, for reasons that you can imagine, they won't tell us what the wiggle amount is. Um, you, the idea is that they're, the point is they're not trying to trip you up with the program. They're trying to see if you understand the answer. Now that's easy to say. It uh, doesn't mean it always feels that way when you're in the middle of it. Uh, and we get that. But the best we can say about it is if you're fighting that hard to get it exactly right, you're probably tighter in than you need to be. And there's actually a point to probably make there, which is, I mean, after talking to the folks at NCARB, like, they get this and they're, they have, they're trying to be reasonable about this. So you're not going to fail an exam because, you know, you're off by a quarter of an inch or something or you're off by a little bit. Like, they're looking for, like, a really obvious Yeah, or on like a site plan, you're off by six inches or something like yeah, that. I mean, you know, it's, it's, that's a small number compared to a site plan. Yeah, so, I mean, I think, um, as you say, it's probably not a massive concern. Um, and something you should spend a lot of time focusing on, I suppose. And we totally get that that's really easy for us to say because, you know, there you are like, well, when is it a massive concern? Because they give you, you know, well, you know, you, you didn't pass this. Uh, you know, so it's hard to know exactly, but the general rule is if you've zoomed in and you think you know where, you, where you're meant to put it and you get reasonably close, that's probably the close enough. All right, well, maybe we'll um, uh, close it up there. And um, we'll go ahead and, um, and yeah, um, thank everybody uh, for tuning in. Uh, this was a, uh, a really, uh, it was a really great collection of, uh, of, of questions that yeah. you guys sent. So thank really you so good much. questions, really interesting across the board questions. And I know we weren't able to answer everyone's question here, uh, of course, in, in about an hour and 20 minutes. But um, I d again, I really appreciate everybody sharing them. Uh, and so, uh, and I also want to thank Mike uh, for taking some time to, to tackle these questions. Um, if you guys uh, want to attend our next ARE live broadcast, uh, which is going to be focused on the programming, planning, and practice exam, we're going to put together a small mock exam and share it with you guys. Um, uh, you can visit blackspectacles.com slash podcast uh, to register to attend. And just like today's episode, you'll have the chance to ask questions and sharing your answers uh, during the session for live feedback. In fact, we'll ask all of you to share your uh, solutions to that mock exam, and then we'll discuss them during the session. Um, and then also to learn more about our AIA ARE prep uh, curriculum, you can go to blackspectacles.com where you can check out any of the free videos. And for those of you who are ready to start preparing for the ARE, and if you're already uh, an AIA member, you can use coupon code 42716QN, and that's N as in Nancy, APC, uh, they get a 15% uh, discount for the entire duration of your AIA ARE prep membership. And finally, please hop over to iTunes right now and rate our podcast uh, to let us know what you think. Uh, share any suggestions uh, that you may have. I promise we'll read every word that you write and use them to tune our next episodes. So thanks for listening.